Hello, and thank you again for joining us on another episode of Tech Policy Grind, the Internet Law and Policy Foundry's new podcast. Each episode, we'll hammer out the latest in tech law and policy by talking to friends and fellows of the Foundry. The Foundry is a collection of early career professionals paving the way at the intersections of law and technology. We're based all across the country, and indeed, your very own host, all 2017 Foundry Fellows, are virtually recording this podcast from different coasts. I'm Pinal Shah, based in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm an attorney working on GovTech issues. My co-hosts today are Emery Roan, a recent law school grad and fellow at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry and Privacy Rights Clearinghouse based in San Diego, and Joe Jerome, an attorney working on the Privacy and Data team at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Today's guest is Will Reinhardt, inaugural Foundry Fellow and Director of Technology and Innovation Policy at the American Action Forum in Washington, D.C., where he specializes in telecommunication, internet, and data policy with a focus on emerging technologies, innovation, and increasingly algorithmic decision-making. Today, we're going to delve into some of that work that Will's been up to lately. And before that, Will, we want to know more about you. Thanks so much for joining us today, Will. How are you doing today? Doing well. Uh, it's Friday, and it's actually really beautiful out here in DC. So tell us a little bit about um, how you got to where you are, a little bit about your journey. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, again, thanks for having me. So. My, my background, I've really been doing tech and, and news work for quite some time. Um, I guess I've always kind of grown up with computers in various sorts. Uh, my dad is kind of a traditional tech nerd, you know, watching Star Trek on Fridays, X-Files, but also, you know, working on computers, taking them apart, taking stuff apart. So uh, I really kind of have always been involved in, in tech and interestingly enough in politics uh, for quite some time. I'm originally from Springfield, Illinois, so my dad worked in economic development and my mom was also working in politics and kind of been involved in the in the two quite, you know, really for my entire life. It's always been, it's always really been there. So, you know, right around, I would say right around grad school, I ended up, I ended up going to uh, University of Illinois for undergraduate. But then in grad school, I, you know, like a lot of people, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought I was going to get into law school. Um, I ended up working in a law firm for one semester when I was an undergraduate, and I didn't exactly like it that much in working on briefs. And so my pivot, at least initially, was much more on to the, um, you know, new media technology and history and communication theory side of things. So I went to University of Illinois, who has, you know, really good uh, communication school and does a lot of this work. And in fact, when I was in one class, um, you know, this was right around 2007, 2008, and this is when a lot of the stuff from Eric Lichtblau came out, and it was very, very interesting. It was, you know, this is all the, the NSA res uh, revelations, the early ones, not when, um, you know, not when Snowden uh, revealed a whole bunch of stuff, but all the earlier stuff uh, through the New York Times. And the one thing that was mentioned in an offhanded comment was, in fact, that, you know, it, it was assumed that the NSA was funding various sorts of, and which we've since kind of learned, the NSA was funding various sorts of NSF grants, which at the time, as a communication theorist working in big, you know, social networks and semantic networks, as, as you know, we specifically were dealing with, I mean, this was, you know, we were getting funding or the school's getting funding specifically for this, or at least it was my understanding, it's since been my understanding that they were getting funding for this. So I have, that was kind of like my initial foray really into tech policy and the tech policy space. It really got me interested in what's going on, this relationship between, um, you know, government and and technology, the, the intersection of the two and policy really writ large. 
And it just kind of seemed like an easy, natural fit. You know, I'd worked, or my family rather, worked, you know, a lot in, into politics. I was very, very interested in it. And uh, it kind of was just a natural merging between the two. So I ended up doing an internship for a think tank uh, one of the summers after grad school. And then I decided after it, I'm like, you know, I really want to do this full time. So I ended up, you know, just talking to people when I was finishing with grad school. And, you know, I guess five, six years later, here I am still still trying to work hard on these issues. And to be honest, I, I find it actually a lot of fun uh, every single day to be working on them. So that's, that's a perfect time for me to ask you this question then. What are you grinding for? Yeah, I'm, I'm grinding for better political conversations. Uh, I've, you know, for a long time I've lived with this. I've lived with kind of interesting politics in Illinois. And, and I think that uh, what I really want to do is kind of bring back the conversation where people can discuss issues and discuss political issues that are, are you know, are kind of hot topics, but have at least a, an honest and um, equal dialogue. And really what I want to do is, you know, I might not agree with everyone, but at the end of the day, I, I, I really think that individuals can help change the conversation, the political conversations that, that exist today. And I'm, that's really what I find myself wanting to do at the, you know, uh, at this job and more than likely with the rest of my career. So let me, let me cut in. So you are here in the swamp in DC with me. Oh, very much um, so. Where, so I'm with you on trying to have productive conversations. Do you really think we can have productive conversations here in Washington, or should we be focusing our efforts elsewhere? No, I, I really do think we can have um, uh, equal, equitable conversations in Washington. I'm actually, I, I'm fairly, you know, there's a lot, when you actually get into a, when you actually sit down and you end up talking to people, you know, I end up talking to people on the Hill, I have conversations with other people in think tanks, you know, randomly meet them at a event, you know, in Washington D.C. as as it happened with with Joe. Um, you know, I I feel like that we can have an honest conversation in, in Washington. Just it it um, it takes a lot, and it's always going to take a lot. It's it's going to take a lot for individuals to to get there. To be to be quite blunt, um, but I'm still optimistic. At the end of the day, I'm just very I'm still very very optimistic about about our political conversation. So I think there's probably a lot of confusion generally just about what exactly a think tank is and mm -hmm. what sort of work is done at a think tank. Oh, uh, yeah. How would you explain sort of what you do to those folks that are asking those questions? So I would say a think tank is really the, um, we. Tr I mean, I would say my a lot of what my work is is in translating, translating between the space of academia, which I do come from and having, you know, a, a still, you know, a foot there. You know, I do a number of, of panels that are more academically inclined. I have a you know a number of papers and articles that I'm working on in academia, but at the same time, then I'm also trying to work with policymakers and trying to you know help have conversations about it, you know a number of different issues like telecommunications and privacy law. Um, and so what I really see think tank work is doing is this translation between what's going on in these two worlds. Uh, at least that's the way that I would present myself. Um, there's other sorts of think tanks that that work out there that are that um, don't necessarily see themselves in both both worlds, but I think a lot of the really important players are trying to do a little bit of both. They're trying to have, you know, they're trying to be honest about these conversations, but also trying to be rooted in, in scholarly work. 
So I think when you were telling us about your journey, a lot of our listeners and a lot of our fellows and I think a lot of the potential listeners and potential fellows uh, probably follow a sort of similar path that you have, at least growing up, you know, surrounded by technology, surrounded by politics. Do you have any recommendations for those younger students or younger listeners that want to follow in your steps, uh, are interested in the tech policy analyst world? Um, yeah, I mean, it. I think it really depends. I mean, for me, I see that there's effectively three sorts of major uh, types of ways that you can come into this. One side is, you know, law and, and being kind of an expert in law. And I think that's, you know, obviously a worthwhile set of skills to have. Another one is to be an economist, to know, you know, being able to kind of crunch the numbers and being able to come from the economic side of things. I think the other, the third part is being a technologist. And so I, I would... Honestly, I think most individuals who are interested in tech policy, just writ large, should probably be focusing on one of those three major areas, hmm. either focusing on law or fo- focusing on you know economics or, again, the last one, which I think is really, really important nowadays are technologists, good technologists, um, whatever it requires to get those skill sets. And I'm trying to be a little bit of both on the you know, side of technologist and, you know, and as an economist. But I think that those, those three different areas and those three different skill sets can really can be very, very important. And if you're wanting to get involved in this, I think those are really the ways to, to, to be useful in a conversation. So what about the recently graduated, the person that may have already uh, taken those steps toward those three fields, but they are now out of school, maybe they're in Springfield, Illinois, maybe they're in you know, Kansas. Uh, what, what is their next step? Do you have any advice for those people? So there is, it, I say it really depends on what their I would say it is again kind of going back to the skill sets i would i would really focus on on those the intersections between the two so you know if your background is in is in law my my suggestion regardless of wherever you're wherever you're located you know uh i would take those opportunities or try to craft those opportunities such that you're dealing in some sort of technology related field within law so if you're you know if you're working in the finance industry right now i think one of the big things to get really involved in is in fintech just generally and what's happening with financial regulation you know and that's again one kind of like specialized pathway um if you're in economics you know if you're you know working as an economic consulting or a management consulting um and in some regard i would again try to focus on the tech space if you're able to do that or try to focus on some area that allows you to get into the tech space uh, because really what you're looking for is some sort of pathway if, if you're interested in this work and interested in policy work. You're looking for some sort of pathway and kind of specialized pathway in, into, into, um, you know, into, into D.C. Otherwise, I mean, really it's D.C. or San Francisco. Those are really kind of your only options if you want to get involved in, in tech policy, and that's really it. Yeah. Um, there's really not too many other places where you can that be involved. Cold, in hard truth. Yeah, I mean, if you if you want to do if you want to do technology policy, you've really got to be in one or the other. So, well, we're going to dive into some of your work that you've published lately and talk about some of the exciting implications there. But before we get yes, out of this good. sort of intro question and answer period, uh, I realize that you know, we haven't really talked at all about the think tank that you're part of. Do you want to give mm-hmm. a plug to the American Action Forum? Give us a little bit of background about what that is, what they're yeah. all about. Yeah, so uh, American Action Forum has been around, I guess it's now probably been uh, about seven or eight years. Uh, I've been working here for three, about three years. Um, it's going to be three years coming up shortly. So the American Action Forum was founded uh, by the, the president of our organization is um, Doug Holtzikin, who's a former CBO director under, under George Bush. So mainly what we do is economic analysis. We're part of, you know, a center right. I'd say center right coalition that works on this, works on these issues. 
um, kind of few and far between these days. But uh, I, I believe that we uh, that we try to we're really trying to do empirical work. So a lot of the stuff that I've been doing in the past, a lot of the telecommunications work that I've been doing has been very empirically focused and the same with the the AI algorithm stuff, which is I feel like is the is really our focus here at the think tank and and is really where I feel most comfortable to be very honest. So in the last show, we talked to fellow Tiffany Lee about some of the risks of AI and algorithms to privacy. Um, but you've been writing about algorithms and big data as well. I think you mm -hmm. might have a slightly different outlook on Tiffany on these technologies, which is good. It's, you know, back to that civil discourse you were talking about. Yeah. Um, today, we've got several articles that you've written on the topic that we'll be discussing, including the election of 2016 and the filter bubble thesis in 2017. Um, this is why most criticism of risk assessment models is mistaken, and the Social Graph Portability Act doesn't take tech seriously, and that's worrying. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of that, do you want to kind of give a broad strokes explanation of um, to the listeners that may need some more context about what you're talking about here? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, thanks, thanks again for for uh, for going over these topics. I think that obviously what's happening with platforms, platform technologies, and the various sorts of artificial intelligence um, technologies that are currently, you know, being deployed at various aspects of the economy, there's there's a lot of important policy ramifications for them. And, and really what I've been trying to do is put together a research program that, that combines a lot of these different, the, a lot of these different areas. So one of them, which, and again, I really, really like uh, Tiffany's work on this, um, and to be very honest, you know, you got to right click baity titles so you can actually get some people reading it. And if, you know, if there, if there's some controversy over it, you know, that at least, that, that at least we can have that conversation. Um, I think we can forgive you for that, given that most of the mainstream news organizations are also now using clickbait. So I also good. think well, it's just strictly illegal to write a medium post without a clickbait title. I, I, that I is very I, true. I think like the medium algorithm actually spits it out and says you need to re revise this. <laughs> so, and I, and I, again, I really, really like Tiffany's work on this, um, but I think at least for me, some of the focus is, a, is we're, we're focusing far too much on the, the algorithm. So you know, there's a lot of conversation about algorithms and specifically risk assessments um, of various sorts. You know, if, it, if it's a, a Bales, um, and you know, these are the models that basically take uh, a various questionnaire that whenever, you know, somebody that is involved in the, in the prison or jail system you know, they'll, they'll take a questionnaire and then that, that information, those questions then go into an algorithm. And from that algorithm, you can either have, for example, a um, decision based on, on, you know, how much bail you're gonna get, or if you get bail, or you can have sentencing implications. So, you know, this is a, effectively a sheet of paper, a score that's given to, you know, somebody that's in the uh, judicial system that kind of determines or helps to, uh, that helps to go into the decision-making for sentencing, for example. So, and I think that Tiffany, again, to go back to what she's written, she's done really, really great work on this, but what my worry is, is that we're focusing way too much on the algorithm as it exists, and the, you know, the as, you know, as we say, the social significance of the algorithm, but not the economic or, or, or I'm sorry, that we're focusing far more about the, on the algorithm and statistical significance within the algorithm as compared to the social significance of the algorithm. So how does it actually exist in the world? How are we um, actually implementing these algorithms? What, what kinds of effects of, are they having on individuals? And the reason I keep on going back to this is that um, I ended up having 
you know, in researching and in starting to really get interested in this, my, my, my worry with this is that, you know, having known judges and uh, DAs and people who are involved in various parts of the judicial system that, you know, for better or worse, for better or worse, rather, they, they, they often will go with their own instinct. And so my, my worry was that, well, wait a second, is, you know, are these algorithms or an algorithmic risk assessment scores, are they really having an implication? Because oftentimes when, when a judge sees something, they're going to, you know, they're going to rely on their own judgment because they're a judge, you know, the reason why they're in that chair is because they are, they have expertise and they've been in, you know, been in the, in the system for a while, at least that's the implication. So, or rather that's how the judges would see themselves. So it's always been a worry to me that, that individuals that are involved in various parts of the system wouldn't necessarily be nudged that much by these risk assessment scores. Do you think and, that's a worry? I'm sorry, just so I can understand the context. Are you saying that yeah. you're worried that people will not be judged, will not be nudged by these algorithms? Or are you worried that in our sort of critical outlook and assessing of these algorithms that we are ignoring the fact, the fact that they are not being implemented? Bingo. I think that the second one, the second one, so that in whenever we're talking about the judgment of these algorithms, we're looking at just the algorithm itself and looking at the statistical significance of the algorithm. I think we should be thinking much more broadly about the institution itself of various parts of the judicial system and really be look, you know, looking to see, okay, and this is actually a study I'm working on right now and something that I, you know, I've got, um, you know, I've got some, uh, it should be an article out in uh, a journal next year, but I'm, I'm literally looking at every single instance of one of these risk assessment scores being implemented at a state level and then you see okay what happened to all the factors that were that were important within this risk assessment so did it change did it change you know um did it change incarceration rates recidivism rates did it change a whole slew of different statistics that we might care about so instead again instead of just looking at the algorithm and the algorithm itself what i would like to see more work being done on and there really just hasn't been a lot that's been done on it is the implication of the algorithm as it is implemented within an institution. Because we're talking at the end of the day about policy and how policy changes, not necessarily just the, the algorithm itself. So I have, a, I have a follow-up to that, and maybe this is a foolish question, but maybe you can give us a preview of your, your article in a sense. So is it your thesis that statistics should change? I mean, one of the things that I've thought has been concerning about some of this is the algorithms in general are supposed to be trying to basically basically try and match up with our current statistics around people who are more likely to um, commit another crime or something like that. And that raises questions of whether our you know actual pre-existing law enforcement models work or whether we actually have accurate statistics. So I guess when I think coming at it from the, the center-left perspective, some of the concern is that we don't necessarily have the right inputs that are going into all of this, and that we, we don't exactly know what the ideal result should be. That in itself is, is, so to be very blunt, that I think is an important part of the conversation. So what you're talking about, exam, for example, is... is um, so what, what goes in, not just what comes out, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think there's been some interesting, especially since the ProPublica piece, there's been some interesting work really on the, the sorts of different features that you're trying to categorize. So one of the implications that they're trying to categorize is, um, and this really kind of goes into a weird part of, you know, al effectively algorithmic math, which, and, I, and we can also, I mean, I guess in the show notes, we can also include this. This is a bit of a different question because effectively what you're trying to ask is 
for at least for the risk assessments what they're looking for what they're trying to aim for is calibration so they're trying to ensure that people that are scored at a one through ten have would would have those effects would have you know whatever rates that they're necessarily trying to deal with and i again i can this is gets into a kind of a weird part of this conversation which is that there there seems to be and from what i've read and what i what i understand of this that there seems to be a trade-off between this sort of calibration statistic that they're working towards as compared to a um uh, an individual characteristic output and I, I can i can include this within the or send this to you guys a little bit later at least from my perspective what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to do the work that hasn't been done yet which is really to figure out what the algorithms look like as they're being implemented within these contexts because perhaps the implementation itself uh, will actually lead to different, you know, maybe there is the effect of the algorithm is effectively that, you know, the algorithm says that you're scored at this risk and the way that the people within those institutions see it, it's like, well, something's wrong with that risk, you know, that risk assessment because it has been in the past. So there is this, there's this interesting, to me at least, there's this interesting implementation problem. But I don't know, can you really have that conversation of um, talking about, you know, the outputs of the algorithm, um, you know, database or what, what have you without talking about what actually goes in? I just don't know if that's a fair, um, no, fair of course. thing to say. No, you're right? exactly right. It is, it, is very much, it is very much part and parcel to this. But it... Uh... And it sounds like they're kind of two, two separate questions, right? So it's like, what goes in? But then um, I kind of actually want to follow up, if that's okay with you, to go back to your, your point about um, judicial instinct. And it's, it seems like you put a lot of yes. fidelity in that. So I wanted to ask you a question about, you know, with regard to the use of the algorithm and the algorithm in sentencing, um, in one of your articles, you state that, um, quote, on the ground, courts don't abdicate this power. They merely dismiss the findings of the report. Why would a judge bow to the decision of some external gauge, end quote? But in the Loomis case, um, the trial judge did actually use the quote unquote high risk score in the sentencing decision. How can you yep. say with certainty that judges will always dismiss these tools, especially when you know, sentencing biases in the criminal justice system, particularly against defendants of color, is long noted. Uh, also, but with also within the Loomis within the Loomis cases, you'll notice the one of the interesting things that was said is that he would have gotten the same sentencing regardless of the actual algorithm. Correct. So yeah, the and question, I saw that too. Of, which I think is an interesting implication, and not not to say that. So to step back, it's not to say that the input output question isn't interesting, and I I wouldn't I wouldn't specifically say that's not something a conversation we should. That's a conversation we definitely need to have. And in fact, there, I think, are some very interesting implications when it comes to, when it comes specifically to race um, with regards to algorithms. But for me, I'm, I guess I'm just more interested in the broader question because, again, even if the algorithm itself, the way that the output, the risk assessment comes out, that if at the end of the day, that if it either, if it effectively just confirms a bias, that's something that we should talk about. But if it doesn't confirm a bias and in fact pushes a different sort of uh, reaction, that's also something we, do, we need to think about. It's, yeah. I don't know that there's necessarily this, the assumption here is that there's this linear, there is this linear relationship between the algorithm's biased output and a biased judicial system, which I think we need to at least investigate a little bit more. And while I'm saying that other people are doing really interesting, especially in the data science world, they're doing some very, very interesting things with the sort of input output of the of the algorithms. I'm I'm also as interested in that second part. 
All right, so I guess, do you want to give us a little bit of spoilers? I mean, I don't want you to report prematurely. I know that you, this is a work in progress, but, I mean, you are working on a paper on this right now. Do you have any preliminary leanings to report? So I actually have, I, to be very blunt, I have none whatsoever because I just got this, um, this paper just got accepted probably about a week ago, a week and a half ago. So I'm just starting the collection uh, hey, you right know, that's now, refreshing. I, it's it's always refreshing to hear people that are willing to say, wait yes. until I get the data before I say anything. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm, and we've and seen And where are you other, going to be presenting this? Um, it should be in a series of papers. I forget that. It's like the Journal of Information and Technology, Journal of Information and Technology Policy, I want to say. Um, I'm doing this as part of a larger conference that's, that's being put together by some individuals. Um, and so... Yeah, and I, I think it's obviously a really interesting. It's an interesting sort of, of, um, uh, of, 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 of question to be very, very blunt. But to be very honest, I'm just I, I don't know yet, and that's what I'm interested in figuring out. I'm interested specifically in figuring out what is what are the results going to be. What you know, for example, in New Jersey, New Jersey had has gone to this this bail program, this this you know this this um, a risk assessment bail program. And they seem to have been able to actually, you know, get people back into homes. There seems to be this reduction in the number of individuals that are, you know, in the in the prison systems. There seems to be some early suggestions that at least some portions of using a risk assessment model actually gets people that wouldn't be included or shouldn't be included, um, um, you know, you know, back back to their families, back to their homes. You know, it, it seems that. It, it seems at least that in the risk assessment when it comes to bail could be a little bit different than when it comes to sentencing. And that's also something I'm also trying to suss out and that I'll be looking at a little bit further. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I would say stay, stay tuned and, and check out the work whenever it does come out. Awesome. Well, I think that's probably a great time to transition to the next article we'd like to discuss today. That's your piece, The Electron of 2016 and the Filter Bubble Thesis in 2017. So as I read, this is another article where you sort of push back against one of the more common criticisms of the way social media algorithms played a role in the 2016 election. Again, yeah. I think this is an issue that's really nuanced. So maybe listeners would benefit here from a sort of broad strokes overview of what your thesis here is. Obviously, we're talking about the way that um, you know Facebook news algorithms and algorithms controlling what's on your timeline um, may or may not have played a role in the 2016 election, at least according to uh, your findings. Yeah, and so with this, what I've really been trying to understand is this larger um, news ecosystem. So partly what I've been trying to understand, you know, is really what happened in the 2016 election. What what can what do we know currently? What did happen in the 2016 election? Yeah, this is a, <laughs> a very you know very it, you know you talk to people who are working in political science, they and who are working in specific areas, they had a very different sort of outlook when it came to the uh, potentials of the election. But anyway, what I was just trying to do is is lay out what we know so far. So we do know that people go on Facebook and we know that they tend to congregate with other individuals that are like themselves. We do know also, for example, and you know, at least in the past, though this may have changed, that basically individuals um, don't share that much news about politics all that often. And if they do tend to share news, political news on their, either on Facebook or on Twitter, that they tend to be far more politically active and politically involved as compared to other individuals. Um, I think there's also some other interesting implications from from campaign theory, which you know often suggests that 
that news doesn't change an individual's uh, beliefs of you know either being for or pro a presidential candidate one way or the other. But in fact, what they can do is they can kind of invigorate a base that is latent within within you know within the electorate. So really what I was trying to do is just trying to understand this in a larger perspective is that, okay, what do we know about news? What do we know about political news consumption? And what do we know uh, probably, you know, probably happened? So, you know, since this obviously came out, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that news didn't affect the election, but there are other larger secular trends that existed within this, which, I, which I'm currently working on, a larger piece to, you know, kind of break down these larger trends that news may have helped on the on the margins but and you know obviously this is very much a marginal um very much a marginal uh election and kind of important that you know it was, it was won by very few votes in very few places but that the impact of of news in many other contexts in the past just hasn't been as big as we had thought it had been no there's a great section i have highlighted in your paper it says um but in the aftermath of the 2016 election, it's not clear if online technology was needed to yield the same effects. Consider this. Studies of 2016 voters found that Trump supporters largely got their news from Fox News. Clinton voters, on the other hand, didn't coalesce around any one single news source. As Pew noted, the digital news publishers that played prominent roles in the campaign did not appear to serve as main news sources for either Trump or Clinton voters. So if it's true that Trump voters restricted themselves to their own points of view, algorithmically based personalized fil personalized filters weren't the cause. Algorithmic technologies weren't needed, only TV was. So I guess segueing from the notion of filter bubbles and what we might do to pop them, um, I, I was actually very excited to see that you had done some writing on data portability. Uh, data portability is the general idea that you can export data, whether it's data that you've provided, um, other data, personal data about you, and then maybe other types of inferential information. Um, and so, you know, you have written an article that is in response to an online symposium, which is such a DC thing, that was held by the the American Enterprise Institute, which is itself a response to a New York Times op-ed. So, so lots of lots of reading. Um, and data portability is something that I actually am very interested in. Um, you know, I've done some convening and writing on this um, when the Obama administration, before it went into the long night, was interested in data portability. And data portability is a right in the looming um, EU general data protection regulation. Um, so, but data portability is, I think, sometimes posited as a sort of user control, technical innovation, silver bullet. And your, your article is pretty critical and seems to basically suggest that a lot of the folks, including people like me who are talking up how great data portability is, that we don't necessarily understand the, the details of how technology in social platforms works. Is that correct? Um, yeah, and, I, and for obvious reasons, the companies that work on, this, on these platforms, for them, it's kind of a competitive advantage. So they don't talk about this a lot. Um, so I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily critical of one individual, but I, I try to take this at face value and say, okay, hey, let's, let's think about what this social graph portability would look like. And, um, you know, as the original uh, New York Times article said, you know, effectively, if I can reach my Facebook friends through a different social network and vice versa, I'm more likely to try so new social networks. And so I, I took that idea very much to heart and started thinking about it and started looking at these actual technology and actual platforms. And, and what, what if you work on these types of platforms, you know that data 
having data is nice, but you have to do something with the data. You've got to process the data. You've got to structure the data. And in fact, when you look at a lot of companies that have failed, you know, this is one of the things that to me is most interesting about, about MySpace. MySpace failed pretty dramatically when it came to technical architecture. They were they actually did not have, and it was admitted at the time, they did not have great technical engineers. And so when they hit It wasn't a very this, pretty website either. It wasn't a very pretty website. And I remember very I remember very well how there'd be times when it would be down for, you know, you would have a whole bunch of errors. It'd be down for hours on end. Um, so, so I really started to try to think about, okay, if we're going to do data portability, what would it look like? Well, if you have an API, the API itself, and this is what most people talk about is, you know, you have to, you know, open up your API, um, that the API itself would, uh, from at least on Facebook's end, that's really still not the social graph. Uh, and this is what a lot of people want to export is the social graph. And the social graph being... Social graph being effectively all the information about you with within relationship to all other individuals. So it's it's your information within context, and that's the point is that it's your information and how you actually interact with individuals within context. You can try to export that data, but to really understand the power of that data, you have to put it in a network. You have to understand it through a network. And so I started thinking about this. Well, well, when you look at Facebook, there's two important parts of the graph. Um, there's unicorn and there's tau. And really what you would need is you would need an X, I mean, practically speaking, you'd need an export of both of those core technologies to actually Sorry. figure out what's going yeah, on. Yeah, what are those two yeah, core we're technologies? Gonna have to, we can't just drop Unicorn and Tau in the middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of it course. It sounds awesome. It is actually pretty awesome, yeah. So yeah, these tech Unicorn. policy analysts are working on some real Dungeons and Dragons stuff. <laughs> I got to get into that field. So and I, you know, and this could have changed. Uh, this could have changed. The names could have changed, and some of the the you know the the some of this stuff could have changed. But effectively, unicorn is 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 the searching social graph feature. Is the the suite that searches the social graph, and tau is what stores the social graph information. So, from my understanding, tau is the or tao. And who knows? I've actually um, I haven't talked to engineers about this, but I've been reading a whole bunch of these technical manuals on the database and how they're structured, and effectively. This you know, there's one part that stores the information, and then there's another that queries the database, which is what we would assume to be in a you know in a, in a network, and that's where all of the processing of the social graph actually exists. That's the important part of the social graph. The 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 data and the database um, structured and being queried, and again, this is the really important part of Facebook. It's the ability to take that information from the database to then query it and have interesting queries on it and to understand the database as it's structured and then to use that into products. Um, you could have exportability might get you there, but the way that you typically export it is through, you know, say a, you know, through a, a normal API interface. And that's not really going to give you the kind of insights that actually exist within this social graph. Now it, it may be marginally helpful, but I just I don't see it really being this huge changeover, and really allowing for new competitors to pop up because it's the 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 processing itself is the important part. The querying it, the processing it, the understanding the very small minutia of you know subsets of users, and it's that 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 Facebook has been working on for now 10, 11 years in a very decided way that actually gives them their kind of competitive edge in this space. And not to say you couldn't repeat it, but um, until you until we really kind of move with AI technologies and a different set of AI technologies, I don't really see the social graph portability really being effective at creating a new competitor. 
Interesting. So I, I guess I have two follow-up questions, and you can feel free to ignore them if you so choose. So I guess my, my first thing is, do you think, and this is a value judgment, whether there are other insights that Facebook could or, or should be giving its users about the social graph? Um, and, and then second, I don't know if you've given any thought to, so again, the, the general data protection regulation, the GDPR has this data portability right. Um, what's going to happen in March of 20, or in May of 2018 when suddenly people are, have these data portability expectations? Yeah, so the so at least dealing with the EU, um, uh, the data portability stuff, you're still it's still going to have to be output in. I think it's only it's going to have to be in standardized formats. So you're still required to have it in effectively CSV. I think that that if I read well, it correctly, some, that's yeah, something that's machine readable and usable by users uh, or yeah, of course. But but that is that's likely to be converted information into a machine readable format, whatever that right. machine readable format is. That's not the same as having the data that, that I guarantee you, at least in this space, or at least from my understanding, the database itself that, that all this underlying information is, is, is based on is probably coded in its own language. So it probably has its own sort of programmatic features. And again, this is what Facebook and Google do a lot of, is that they create their own databases and own programming for databases in order to actually structure those massive data sets. So even if you do export it, you're, you're I mean, again, I guess this is really kind of my my, you know, my, um, my, uh, my in thinking on this is you're still exporting it in a different format than, than Google and Facebook are using it. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the implications are. Maybe you'll get, you know, maybe you'll get kind of a push to use that data in those standardized formats and to then kind of hook onto them. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm not necessarily against this. I just, I don't think it's the end all be all. And I really just don't see practically I don't think practically we've really the the structured understanding part of of Facebook and Google the the querying it and doing all the really kind of intricate algorithmic features and there are hundreds of algorithms that exist that that's actually where all of the again the oomph comes from and it's really really difficult to export that and you know under I would assume under most of the trade secret IP laws that you're that you're talking about you couldn't do it anyway so I don't know it, it just doesn't seem to be to be a huge a huge benefit for um, for competition now there's other questions I think we could talk about which is user user protection and user rights but I think that's a whole that brings you to a whole different space so it sort of feels like there's a bit of a theme in what we are discussing today, at least in what um, you know your work brings to the discussion, and that's that you know the the importance of actually understanding from a technical perspective the technical realities, the 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 mathematics, the economics, the technology underlying how technology works, especially when we're we're trying to regulate those technologies. Do you, do you think that's 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 exactly what I would? Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I'm what I'm doing and what I'm interested in. Well, thank you for this fascinating discussion, Will. Before we close out, I want to toss it over to Joe to plug our Foundry Book Club and then to Emery for our upcoming events and job board. So uh, thanks, Pinal. I guess I would just say that, you know, Foundry Fellows, by the nature of being at the intersection of law and technology, are reading lots of different things um, that involve technology, political science, and probably uh, a lot of science fiction. Um, so what we're really hoping to do is to launch a, a digital foundry book club by year's end. So dear listeners, uh, please stay tuned for that. And actually, 
please reach out to us if you've got any book recommendations. Um, so that said, I, I think that's sort of a taste of things to come in the future. Um, but as we're all reading stuff, it, so, and, and considering what a prolific writer Will is, um, I guess before he leaves us, anything you're reading of interest these days? Um, if I can invade your privacy, what is on your nightstand? Yeah, right now, so I'm finishing up a book that I originally read in grad school, not the, so the original article that I read in grad school, but the professor ended up doing a larger book. It's called um, Information in American Democracy. The guy's name is Bruce Bember, and the subtitle um, is, importantly, Technology and the Evolution of Political Power. So he goes through all these different stages, and there's a relationship between technology and politics and news, and kind of just charts out what's happened in the last hundred and, well, I guess 200 years almost now. Um, and at least gives at least some understanding and political ecology um, mindset to this entire space and what's been happening now. And he talks a lot about this kind of post-bureaucratic political party structure and what it could mean. And I think it's a little bit prescient. And he talks a lot about what's potentially going to happen with new kind of new groups and new associations. So I would, I would highly suggest everyone check it out. I've, I've found it a really fascinating read so far. Awesome. Sounds like an oldie and goodie. Um... Are any of my co-hosts up to reading anything at the moment? So I'm actually not reading anything right at the moment because I'm on the cusp of like three different book clubs. But I did just <laughs> finish reading um, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, finally. Um, it was I actually highly recommend that book. Um, you know, if you don't know the story of Henrietta Lacks, she was a woman who was inflicted with cancer um, and was a patient at Johns Hopkins several decades ago. And her, um, her cells were um, essentially taken from her without her knowledge. But um, those cells really contributed to a lot of um, scientific knowledge and um, medical breakthroughs that we've had today. And so I, I really recommend it because I think a lot of times um, people of color's history is, is, is often denied throughout you know, throughout time and, or, or, or kind of, uh, viewed with the revisionist lens. And so, um, I really recommend that book to, uh, to understand, um, her contributions to science today. Yeah. I think there's a really great radio lab that people should listen to about Henrietta Lacks. Uh, I am currently listening to uh, my other favorite podcast I've recently discovered. It's called The Vana Guys. It's a, a book club podcast where a couple of comedians go through and reread uh, Kurt Vonnegut books. Um, so I, I've been following them along and working through that. I'm also finally reading uh, The Handmaid's Tale. And uh, I have a copy of The End <laughs> of Ownership, which is my tech law related book sitting on my nightstand that I will read. I will read, but I would like to cover as we're closing out the show, uh, some upcoming events coming on at the Foundry and some uh, opportunities on the Foundry job board that you listeners, dear listeners, might want to check out. So on November 6th, our fellow Foundry fellow Kara Sutton is going to be hosting a privacy design lab focused on privacy by design and consent management. Now, this is going to be in Brussels, so it's uh, a little bit of a hike if you're in the States, but if you happen to be in uh, Brussels for the IAPP conference, uh, they definitely want you to check it out. It sounds really, really interesting, and uh, I hope that it's streamed afterwards. And another feature that we like to cover each episode of the uh, Tech Policy Grind is the Foundry Job Board. So we have a couple opportunities on the Internet Law and Policy Foundry Job Board today. At Carnegie Mellon, there's an opening for an assistant professor of privacy and information security position. In New York, at the company Datadog, there's looking for a new counsel of privacy and commercial. And Airbnb over in San Francisco is looking for an associate general counsel of their TRIPS team. So you can check out those jobs and more at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry Job Board. You can find that at www.ilpfoundry.us slash jobs. All right. So, Will, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thanks for having me.
Yeah, it's always important to hear different perspectives on issues that are affecting our daily lives. Um, if you're interested in reading any of the articles that we'll author that we referenced today, we'll post them in our show notes. If you want to hit us up on Twitter for questions, comments, or just to generally Twitter stalk us, you can reach me, Pinal, at, at Woman of Fuego. Uh, Emery Roan can be found at Emery Roan, and he only speaks in third person when he's trying to tell you his Twitter handle. <laughs> <laughs> and I, Joseph Jerome, uh, I'm available at Joe Jerome. Will, can we, where can people find you on Twitter? Yeah, I'm at Will Reinhardt, um, and then also Medium is the same. And also, following up on this, I'm probably going to write just something quick to um, to lay out some of the other other issues we didn't talk about. So I'll you know send it off and see if we can do you know some sort of blog post about it. Great, awesome, cool. All right, guys, if you enjoyed the show, rate or review us on iTunes. Spread the word and share with your friends. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>